Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. And fabulously, my name is Eamon Murtagh. And marvellously, my name is Deb Grant. And in this week's show, the marvellous Deb Grant is back on the game. Oh no, not on the game. (laughs) (laughs) You have to leave that in. (laughs) I mean, she's she's in the dating game. Apologies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, as if this podcast hadn't tanked my reputation enough. <laughs> Is that all you want to say about that? <laughs> I think just leave it there. All right. We'll leave it there, listeners. Hopefully that will um, that will keep you listening. Anyway, aside from that, Eamon has discovered this newfangled technology called audiobooks, a whole new way to ingest information about music. Perhaps you've heard of them. If not, Eamon is going to enlighten you. I've seen the future and it's book-shaped. Well, anyway, the main point of this show is that this week our guest is absolutely amazing. He has sold more records than you have ever imagined, and I imagine that's quite a lot. The fabulous Trevor Horn is with us, the producer of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, the lead singer in The Buggles, and occasionally Yes, the man who made Grace Jones's golden period come to life, the man who made Seal a multi-platinum selling star around the world. I mean, he even made a record with Leicester City Football Club. The man's invincible. Trevor Horn is our guest. We've outdone ourselves this week, I think. I think we better pod really hard. I think we better. Let's get podding. (laughs) DJ Deb. I nearly called you Deb Frankenstein. It's been a while. (laughs) DJ Deb Grant. Please tell me what goes around in your wonderful world. Yeah, it'll be a long while yet before I shake off the Frankenstein. I don't want to shake it no. off, actually. I mean, yeah, your monstrous past will always haunt you. <laughs> Speaking of which, I have big news. Um, oh, yeah. Personal news. Oh. I'm recently single, uh, as you oh, may man. know. I, after after six years, I'm, I'm back single again and I uh, feel pretty good about it. And um, mm-hmm. but it's just it's an interesting one. It's been six years. I feel like a, d- a completely different person to who I was six years ago. And, uh, you know, I'm pr- pretty. Um, how can I describe this tactfully? I'm quite a forceful character when I'm out in social situations. <laughs> I was out at uh, I went to see Hot Chip on Saturday night and um, attempted to chat up some guy in a bad brains T-shirt. And then it turned out he was like in his mid 20s. A bit. This is oh. like, I think my 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 goggles have cougar been frozen. Alert. <laughs> Am I a cougar now? I, I think like you must be a cougar if you've gone after a twenty-year-old. Then yeah, right. It was dark. Don't think, don't think that'll hold up in court, love. <laughs> <laughs> he was perfectly legal. But anyway, Ooh, sorry. Hang on. Oh, your chair just collapsed. Oh Say that again. <laughs> So I'm steady now. Okay, okay. Um, so yeah, but it's, uh, you know, I'm in a totally different place. And my sister's boyfriend has been saying to me, um, oh, just get on the apps, get on the apps. It'll be a real ego <sighs> boost, you know. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I don't think my ego needs boosting. <laughs> and second of all, <laughs> like, you know, he's a like tall, handsome Irishman. Like, it's different. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, like, it's not even about, it's not even about, you know, the awful people who you meet on these apps. It's like, I, I don't, I don't know how I would, I just, how do I write about, what am I supposed to fucking say? Like, I like music. <laughs> do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, how am I supposed yeah. to, how do I, I can't. My favourite colour is red. Yeah, um, I think, well, listen, I, I do not envy you um, as much as it might be fun to go 
wild and crazy about town. I'm very glad that I um, found my partner and uh, settled down, as they say, before the invention of dating apps. Mm. Because I have watched many, many of my friends go on these dating apps and uh, just seems like a lot of horror for very little sugar. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's, uh, it seems like, first of all, you're right. I mean, I can imagine if I was doing it now, you have to you have to write something about it, you have to take the photograph and then you, what you're just setting yourself for people to literally come along and judge you yeah like, like you're, you're on the fucking shelf at aldi they're picking you up yeah the ingredients oh, and being like, no not for me i'll pick this one instead but it's like it, it is like i think for people like you and me who are singularly obsessed with one thing do you know what am i supposed to say i like fucking yeah. captain beefheart and enya and if you like those things too, let's talk. Like, and also. But if you put that, listen. If you put <laughs> like Captain Beefheart and Enya on your thing, you're going to get some fucking weird people show up, man. You know, like you know. I mean, Captain not... Beefheart fans are not. You know, they're not normal people. Listen, I don't mind weird. <laughs> what I mind is like a guy fucking with a photo of himself leaning against a car being like, oh, so you're yeah. into music then? Do you like vinyls? You know, I can't be arsed with it. But here's the thing, right? So I, um, this Samande film, the Samande mm. documentary, which I participated in, um, I mean, I'm in it very briefly, but I, I, it means that I got an invite to the premiere, which is part of the um, uh, BFI London Film Festival. Um, it's happening. I mean, it might have already happened by the time this podcast goes out. But basically, I now, I, I, I'm, I guess I have a plus one. I don't know who to take to this, to this premiere. Who am I, who am I going to take? I want to, you know, I want to have an, I feel like that's a nice, yeah. that's a nice prospect. But uh, where, help me, Eamon, how, how, what, well, give me your top tip. I mean, I was never very good at this, to be honest. But <laughs> I, I mean, I, it's, this is the thing. I couldn't do the the dating apps because it's just too high pressure oh, sure. you want to just meet people but you know then you have to go out and do stuff that's pressure yeah. you know and then there's work you know that can go one of two ways very good or very bad mm. and it's hard it is hard and I think you're going to have to just find it but I think maybe the best thing to do at the moment is to um, you know uh, enjoy it for a, a bit of a, a bit of silliness at the moment you're not, not worried too want. much of it yes all exactly I, I mean this is the thing like I already have a husband and it's my job and my job mm. is also my child so I don't really have any room for anything. In a way that makes sense because your job does get you up in the middle of the night and <laughs> keep, keep you awake for hours and hours that does make sense. Yeah and I don't mind it but yeah so I don't all I want is a little bit of fun but that's the thing it's like you know I have this I, I you know I have some fun events that I'm going to mm. and uh, I feel like if I was a man it would be a lot easier do you know what I mean? do you think like, so I, honestly as a man I would say no well, I would say no only because I feel like I'm sort of um, I don't know like I, I I I have a bit of I don't know I feel like I'm quite alpha and yeah. men don't men don't like that but if I was a well, man some that do. would be a good mm, you, listen yeah. you just I think you need what you need to do as my mum would say is you need to kiss a lot of frogs I don't want you know, to miss any frog. I know it's, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? It's a double-edged yeah. sword. It's going to be the apps is the easiest way. There's I'm no doubt about it. I'm not doing it. But, Absolutely yeah. not. I can't. I'm okay. not doing it. This is. I don't think I'd do I do it either. You do. I can't believe, as a man who's been with their partner for several decades, you don't have any good advice for me. There must be lads around, surely. There must be a few. See, in my experience, like 
when a girl asks you out or you know girls ask someone out they, they nearly always get a yes mm. when boys ask girls out it's quite often a no that's that's that maybe that's just because i'm a boy and that's my experience yeah. but i'm also i wasn't a big alpha boy you see you're probably more alpha than i am yeah yeah no, i don't don't agree with that <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be true, Amy. Yeah, I think it almost certainly is. Come on, would you crack on to a girl in a bad brain, a, a, a woman child in a bad brains t-shirt at a gig? I bet you oh, to be honest, if I was going to crack on to anyone at a gig, they'd, um, they'd have to be wearing a bad brains t-shirt. I think that would probably, <laughs> probably be the first thing I'd look for. Now, listen, one shot in the dark is not everything. You know, you've, you've had your, your weekend out, you've, you've spun the wheel of fortune. You found a bad brains t-shirt. It was just filled by a 20-year-old. You need to just go out there and spin it again and see what happens. Because you're a beautiful shining star. And, um, you know, you have your own internal gravity and that will draw them towards you, I'm sure. Mm. Just need a date for this premiere. Okay, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Form an orderly queue. Oh my God! No, don't, don't. We did not mean that. Don't do that, please. That would just be creepy and weird. No, honestly, I'll end in tears. You don't want to do this. Nobody knows me better than the listeners of this podcast. Oh, it's your funeral. <laughs> not that I think little of the uh, beautiful people that listen to us. Listen, you're going to be fine. It's, it's going to happen. I think uh, you just need to remain chilled. And whenever you see someone that half catches your eye, just you know, give them the old blarney. And uh, you'll be away. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Honestly, you're going to be grand. You're going to be grand. The other thing is, because you're a powerful figure, that you, you probably frighten away some of the, the more lily-livered people. But that's good, because you don't need to get annoyed at them in the long run anyway. Mm. Yeah, you need someone who's got a bit bit pushback. Do you know what I mean? Otherwise, basically, you're going to flatten them. I do need someone to put me in my place. <laughs> that's exactly what I need. Your star will find its partner. I'm sure you're going to be all right. Um, in the meantime, I mean, I wish I was in London. I could be your plus one. I'd love to go, you know, swanking around at the posh hotels and do what you does I get invited to. I bet you would. I bet you yeah. would. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's as far as it goes, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> listen, keep the faith. You're going to be fine. There'll be a Captain Beefheart fan out there somewhere who hasn't got strange habits. And, um, and, 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 and you're going to be happy. It'll come. Maybe I should go on the Prague cruise. That's it. That's how you do it. This is it. You, you, listen, you go to the prog. You've already solved half your problems because you know they're going to be into music, um, and you know they, they're going to be like sort of generally sort of creative types. But more brilliant for you, you know they can't run away because they're on a ship. <laughs> Just corner them. <laughs> Eamon Murder, surprise me, what goes around? Well, the surprise is that I'm not going to talk about a video documentary about music. No, I don't I'm... believe you. No, it's true. <laughs> I've expanded my universe and I've done this by finding another way to take a direct injection of musical trivia into my veins. I have entered into the world of audiobooks and music biography. Mm. It's good, man. It's good. So I've, I've um, basically... Uh, I started sniffling about and then I thought, well, this is good. I don't want anyone who's listening to this podcast to stop listening to this podcast 
and start listening to music audiobooks. It's a trouble right? when you, you recommend something. Exactly. You <laughs> stay with urgent. us, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, after you finish this, while you're waiting for the next show, then you can go listen to some of this stuff. But the, the great thing is that, A, they're very, very long. So, you know, and B, you can have them on while you're doing other things. Do you know what I mean? So, so like, if you're doing the dishes or playing a computer game or whatever it is, you can just have the audiobook battering away, which when you do the, the, the Netflix stuff, you can't really do that. You have to sit there and you are basically a zombie for that time. So I can't listen to music passively. I have to either be listening or not listening. But I'm sure it's very liberating. I'm just, I, I thought, I've always got the feeling that you are doing something else when I'm talking to you. Really? <laughs> <laughs> just concentrating very hard. Okay, okay. Well, it, it, I, can hear the, I can hear the cogs and gears creaking around <laughs> as, as I speak. No, so I've done a few now. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few that I've done. So I did um, The Fabulous Sylvester, The Legend, The Music, The 70s in San Francisco by Joshua Ganson. As you can imagine, uh, Sylvester's story is incredible because he, you know, he comes from this quite rough but very religious background. He was gay as gay can be from a very young age and um, just by sheer force of personality became this incredible star with incredible talent, you know, uh, but really, really took himself out of the ordinary and made this, this amazing scene. And there's so much to love about it, where he, he, they're talking about the sort of the lifestyle that his little gang that hung around and did all the cross-dressing and through the parties and, you know, started all that um, kind of miming to songs and, and, and all that kind of thing. His story is amazing and I really enjoyed it, but the trouble with it is, and this is the trouble with the audiobooks in general, is that who reads them makes such a big difference. Mm. Now, the Sylvester one's quite good, but it's not read by the author. It's read by someone else who maybe puts a little too much in it. You know, like where you kind of get the feeling it's an actor who would who would who really would prefer this to be a, a proper role in a proper <laughs> film or something. <laughs> so they're, they're they're giving it, and they're obviously being held back every now and again. But you can feel they want to do voices and stuff, and they want to they want to go a bit further. Um, so what I've decided is my favourite ones are the ones that are read by the people who wrote them or are directly involved by them. So I, I've gotten a New Order tip and um, I got Stephen Morris's record play pause, Confessions of a Post-Punk Percussionist, The Joy Division Years. Bloody long titles, these. Mm -hmm. um, and that's great because it's all like him in his Macclesfield accent, just being very down to earth and unflashy about the whole affair. And kind of giving the sort of picture of Joy Division, which you don't get very often, because, uh, you know, people want to imagine Joy Division in, in black and white, grainy, super eight film. Uh, you know, they want to see long shots of them walking into car parks and that sort of thing. But of course, the reality was they were lads <laughs> from Manchester, yeah. you know, and they were the, like smashing beer bottles and, you know, and, and just generally being... Being idiots. I think he's got a lovely way of describing his own idiocy. You know, he, he's not pretentious at all. He kind of knows where he comes from. And when he starts talking about how um, Ian Curtis was going off into learning about Baudelaire and all these incredible philosophers and all that sort of stuff, he's very honest about the fact that him and Hookie were pissing into beer bottles in the <laughs> rehearsal room and leaving them for other bands to find, you know. So it's a lovely dichotomy. Um, and he tells a marvellous story about trying to score speed and scoring a little star-shaped pill and eating that, thinking it was speed, and then finding out that the five points of the star were five different microdots. Oh, <laughs> and, and he's like, you know, there, there are many ways you might want to do acid, but I imagine 
on tour in Berlin while staying in some sort of... Uh, basically a brothel, you know, that probably is, isn't going to be the best experience you've ever had. But it's a lovely story. I really enjoyed it. And that got me on on a, a bit of a, a Manchester tip. So then I went on to, uh, from Manchester with Love, The Life and Opinions of Tony Wilson mm. by Paul Morley. And this is great. You know, Paul Morley is a great writer. But you know how he appears on all of those Talking Heads shows? Mm-hmm. You know, he's always one of those guys that goes, oh, yeah, when they did this, of course, it changed the course of music. That's right. And it feels like they've cut to him and they just haven't cut away. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Too much. So I'm, like, I'm halfway through now. I'm like, oh, God, can we just can we uh, can we cut to Sean Ryder or someone for 10 minutes and just get, get a different perspective on this whole thing? <laughs> but no, I would say audiobooks are actually a rather nice way to get into these things because mm-hmm. If you're not like you and you can multitask, then you can, you know, you can you can listen on the way into work. You can you can do the dishes. And I mean, I can walk and it. listen to something. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I wouldn't want you to be immobile. <laughs> <laughs> Immobilized by an audiobook. But um, but yes, I, I like an audiobook. I think weirdly, I I can I find it really hard to sit and read. Um, no, that's not true. I do like a memoir, but like fact books, I find it quite mm. hard to sit and read sometimes. Whereas I find fiction really difficult to listen to on audiobook. So like fact books on audiobook, it's the perfect thing. Yeah, because I think if you listen to fiction, then again, even more importance is put upon the person reading yeah. it. Because then they kind you kind of want them to act a little bit. But then the great thing about a fiction book is that you, you make it up in your head and it becomes this incredible movie in your in your imagination. Um, but with fact-based books, you, you kind of don't want that. And it's nice to hear the actual people involved do it because when they say, it, you know, it doesn't have the extra trappings of performance added onto it all. Mm. So very good. Go out and, and treat yourself to those audiobooks. I'm sure they will bring joy into your life. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Our guest today has made an astounding impact on the music industry. He wrote the first song to appear on MTV, the prophetic video killed the radio star. He pioneered the use of the sampler in pop music, thanks to his early adoption of the Fairlight synthesizer, and created the gold standard for 12-inch singles with a blizzard of groundbreaking remixes for The Art of Noise, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Grace Jones. He's worked with the likes of Yes, Propaganda, Seal, Dollar, ABC, Mike Oldfield, Malcolm McLaren, Mark Almond, and a dizzying array of other household names. We are, of course, talking about the production genius that is Mr. Trevor Horn. Trevor, we're so delighted to have you on the show today. How are you? Fine. Thanks very much. <laughs> oh, man. I'm a bit so, sort of, uh, you know, hearing my intro. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's always a weird thing, isn't it, when someone just yeah. comes right up to your face and tells you how great you are. I think that was amazingly succinct, given everything else that we could have included in that intro. Yeah, to be fair. yeah. There was a, yeah. there was a very yeah, long Wikipedia entry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's amazing, and we, we were just uh, uh, talking about um, your book, which is just released, "Adventures in Modern Recording," which uh, is the, the format of the book. It's like your memoir told 
um, in 23 songs, either songs that you were involved with or songs that inspired you. So uh, the theme of the yeah. book is, is very similar to the, to the theme of the podcast and your phonographic memory. So it's kind of perfect. Uh, would you like to talk to us a little bit about the book first before we get into your song selections? Because I'm wondering why you felt like now was the best time to put a memoir out and why this felt like the right format to do it in. I guess I started it about 10 years ago. I wrote four of the chapters. And it was like one of those things, somebody got interested for a minute <laughs> and then it sort of <laughs> died away. And uh, and then a couple of years back, these uh, people at Pelican Books just came on really strong. They said they really liked, um, they saw the four chapters, they really liked it and they they wanted me to do a book. And I thought, why not, you know? Yeah. Um, it might save me doing loads of interviews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just tell people go and read the book. <laughs> not, not this one. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the only one you need. This yeah. is this is the big time yeah, here. Exactly. It's a great concept because um, we truly believe in the in the sort of power of of music to take you back to certain times in your life, and sometimes you know um, times when you didn't have your camera around, you know, and the, you know there are there are big things going on in the world. And yeah. just one little clip of music can take you right back years and years and years and put you right in that frame of mind again. It's an amazing thing. Yeah. When you have to go back through everything and think about it. Um, we were talking about the writing of the book and, and why one would write a book mm. and, uh, and why now. And I mean, I mean, I, mean the, the, I guess the other reason, too, is, you know, when you get older, you think, well, who knows, you can pop at any time. And you might as well put down some of the things that happened. It was good fun, you know. Yeah. Mm. And the idea of, of of doing it with songs, I thought, would be much more interesting than just chapters, you know, because it's really what people would be interested in. They don't really want to hear, you know, a few chapters about Durham or something like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How did you narrow down the, the songs that you wanted to include in the book? Well, I... It's funny you should ask me that because somebody said to me the other day, you know, you always seem to be having a problem getting the track right. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, the reality of it is that I am talking about some of the biggest tracks and the, the biggest tracks have always got stories attached to them. You know, there's always problems when you're making them, you know. And, uh, and so I guess I chose the ones that had good stories in them, you know. Rather than, you know, you, uh, what could you say? You know, we all got together, somebody played this and everything turned out fine. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it does happen sometimes. Uh, you get it. We used to call those freebies where, uh -huh, where, right. where suddenly something goes right for a day. You're working with track and it's nearly done, you know, yeah. it's like a freebie. Wow. <laughs> and back to the ground, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose when you're, um, you know, producing other people, there's there are so many variables involved in in any anything you take on you know you've got the everyone involved in writing the song everyone in the band everyone in the in the studio and the engineers and all that sort of thing so there's a lot of um and we haven't even got mentioned the record companies etc so there's a lot of different variables going on there and like, as you say that you, you know if you pull one one chord out of that the whole thing can unravel fairly quickly how do you manage to uh, to keep these things together, or is it just luck of the draw? Well, I, if you think about it and you read the book, I didn't work with many groups because, you know, it's normally engineer-producers that work with rock bands, for instance. But, you know, I worked with Yes because I was a really huge fan of Yes. So mm. I, I didn't... Uh, 
and ABC were were kind of only four people, that five people, sorry, and they were they were more or less there all the time in the studio. You know, uh, some artists aren't. You know, they they you, they they you start something off with them and then they go off and then they come back. Mm. You know, when you've got it all sorted out. You know, it it just it it, it varies with with the, with the person you're working with. You know. Mm. I mean, if you a track with Rod Stewart, for instance, like, Rod has got no interest in coming into the studio while you're doing the track, right? <laughs> you know, no interest, right? What he wants you to do is to turn up with a track that he likes to sing over. So yeah. it's, uh, that's one person, you know, but other people uh, can be jumpy and they're scared that you might do something, you know? When I was, when I was doing the last album with the Pet Shop Boys, they used to come in every morning and insist on hearing the mix where I left it the night before. <laughs> And sometimes they'd be saying, Trevor, you stayed up too late, and this has got to come off, and that's got to come off. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned yes as well, which must have been quite a formidable prospect, surely, to work with yes, especially if you were a fan of the band already. Yeah, well, it, it was, but, but I mean, I, I was, uh, you know, I sort of joined as the singer in 1970, late 1979, yeah. or early 1980. And... Um, that was that was pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, I bet um, because they're incredibly technically competent as a band, aren't they? Oh yeah, they're all really good players. The f but you know, we we made an album together, um, a, a drama album. But the funny thing is, w within sort of a week and a half of joining, I realised that, that, that uh, singers only get to do their bits. You know, everybody else got sorted out before the singer because it was only ever a guide vocal. Oh yeah. Mm. Until you came to do the singing. So there was loads of downtime. So I, of course I ended up producing just like I normally did. You know, when we when they were playing the opening track, it had like a, a six minute intro that was completely instrumental that they were playing live. And I remember I gave the marks out of ten. <laughs> and uh, I said we have to get to an eight, eight out of ten before I accept it. And so Fantastic. for every bit of the opening it was a track called Machine Messiah. Mm. Every bit had to be eight out of ten, but it was good fun. We, we, it was fun working together, you know. I, yeah. That's why I put up with them because I like them so much. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, if you're going to walk into a band, you know, you might as well walk into one with with a lot of chops. Oh, yeah. And of course, you, you went on to produce um, a number of albums with them, uh, and uh, a huge, huge single success as well, which they hadn't really had before. Well, what's kind of ironic is that Nine Hundred One Two Five is Yes's biggest album. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think I say in the book that I don't think it's the best one. I, 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 for me, Close to the Edge or Relay, um, maybe Fragile and the Yes album are my favorite Yes albums. Mm. But I do like uh, 90125. I do think it's a good record. I think, I, I mean, it, it was surprising to get such a big hit single with Yes. <laughs> but that's the reason... I agreed to do it the second time to produce them. You know, I wasn't the singer that the second time. I produced it, and it was really unconditioned that they did Under a Lonely Heart. Well, good conditions, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, did you did you just kind of naturally drift into into production then, or, or you know, because you said you you sit around up with a lot of time in your hands in between takes and waiting for your vocals to come on? Did you just drift into it, or was it something that you'd already had your eye on and you wanted to to get involved no, I, with? I didn't drift into it at all. Um, I wanted to, but you know, I I built a recording studio in Leicester, 
and mm -hmm. uh, with some friends in ni about 1975, with with the money I'd made from playing with the Ray McVeigh band, and and we got no for the, sorry. The, one of the first customers we got was a man who wanted to make a record with Leicester City football team, <laughs> and um, so I I made the record. I got the musicians, I fixed the song up and whatever. And uh, and it came out on Decca. It didn't do anything, but afterwards, uh, a guy said to me, a guy called actually, um, anyway, Coleman, uh, said to me, um, you know what you did with that Leicester record is being a record producer. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? I got it together. He said, but that's, that's what producers do. You, you acted like a producer. He said, you know, you got the musicians, right? And I said, yeah, and you fixed the song up. I said, well, the song was written. I didn't write it. And he said, no, but I fixed it up. He said, yeah, all the chords are wrong, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so from that moment on, really, I, I uh, Bill Coleman, that was his name. Mm. I realized that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but it took me from, from there, it took me about five years. Uh, and uh, before Video Killed the Radio Star, I, 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 did, uh, I did loads of demos for people. The year before Video was a hit, uh, I had my di I used to have a, a diary for that year, and I'd produced 48 songs. Wow. Yeah. Ah, that's a lot. For various people. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd done a lot of work. Video Called the Radio Star was the result of, of Jeffrey and I really spending a lot of time in the studio and learning a, how to, you know, gags, you know, like yeah. how to mm. get things to sound good, learning all the stuff that they don't teach you in books. Mm. And so I didn't, I didn't just drift into it. During those five years, were you, um, did you have conviction that you were going to have a huge pop hit or were you just working away thinking I'm going to hone my craft and just kind of enjoying yourself? Or did you kind of have your eye on, you know, the big time and having a really big chart hit? Well, the music business isn't fun unless you're in the big time. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's a bit of a dreary drudge. Yeah. Y yes, I, I, I wanted to get a hit, but I, I knew it was. I, I, I was under no illusion. I mean, the first, first thing I ever produ uh, produced, I produced for some friends of mine. I thought it was the best thing in the world, and I thought it was definitely going to be a hit, and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And from that moment, it took me about five years. Um, I realised that there was a lot to learn, and so I just kept trying to learn stuff every time i did a demo i would yeah you know, i got in the studio i'd get the engineer to do different things engineers used to hate me uh, <laughs> i was always coming up with terrible ideas that they didn't want to do so uh, yeah no it definitely wasn't a drift i was i was pretty uh i could see that you know my parents wanted me to give up they wanted mm -hmm. me to uh they want me to go and um, train as a school teacher because I was always good at maths and English. Mm. They wanted me to go and uh, go to teacher's training, but I was like, no, I'm not, uh, I'm, it, it, you know, I'm sure it's going to work. Yeah. An old guy that I used to work for on Denmark Street, a guy called Stuart Reed, he said to me, you know what the music business is like? He said, you, you slog away and it looks hopeless. And then one morning you wake up and you're in business. Mm. And boy was he right <laughs> I slogged away for years and then one morning I woke up 
I was in business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and were your parents convinced after that? Well, it wasn't a question whether my parents were convinced. It was just uh, my father-in-law certainly wasn't. <laughs> my late wife's father, who, who I love dearly, um, one Friday night, I'll never forget, he said to me, how's the record doing, Trevor? And I said, uh, it's number one, Mr. Sinclair. <laughs> he said, huh, well, one swallow doesn't make a summer. <laughs> he sounds like my parents. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, that was, that was early, very early on before we were married. Yeah. He said that. He was worried for his daughter. Yeah, of yeah. Course. And reassured, presumably, that there, there were many swallows after that one. <laughs> you did uh, take some big risks as well, though. I mean, um, setting up a studio is a, is a risk in itself, but you also invested in the in the Fairlight when it was, you know, the, the cost of a, of a car or a small house. And uh, mm. certainly when Frankie Goes to Hollywood came around, I mean, you, you really put all your faith in what you were doing because you spent such an amount of time making those singles as great as they were. I mean, yeah. you must you must have quite a, a, a sort of a deep confidence in your own abilities to, to really lean into the things you've done. Well, it was something like relax. I, I, I was in a position where the, the band, I couldn't just walk away. The band was signed to my label. Right. You know? um, but it certainly... It, it, so I had to get it right. I, there was no alternative. Mm. Um, and if it wasn't right, I couldn't pretend that it was right. Um, so, but you, you are right, you know, until that record was a success, it was all our own money and effort and time that we were putting in. I, I, I knew there was something in Relax. I, I, I don't know, I don't often get that conviction like that, but I knew there was something in it. Part of it was Holly's voice. The way he sang it was so full on, you know. Um, but yeah, I, did, I, I, I must have had confidence. I never thought about it really. I just thought, I've got to get this thing right. You know, whatever what do I have to do? <laughs> I mean, you take songs like the Frankie S. Hollywood ones, and you know, I've I've heard the demos of those, and I saw them on the tube when they first appeared. Um, you know, and they were they were great little songs, and and. A, there was a lot to recommend it, and they were certainly an interesting bunch of people. But the, the finished product was really, I mean, it's huge and groundbreaking and, and just amazing. And all of those remixes were, you know, a, a massive part of my youth. And anyone who's my age will remember the yeah. sheer fuss of all of that. But the productions were so, um, I don't know, they were, they were like architectural. I mean, when you approach a song like that, do you... Do you have a clear vision in your head of what that sound is going to be like? Or, or are you led very much by, by what you find in the recordings? Because, I mean, you, you actually did re-record a lot of the stuff yourself, didn't you? Sometimes I would re-record things myself. Um, th this is something people ask me fairly frequently. And the thing is, music's so, music's so volatile, it's so uh, mercurial that you might have a... You know, one thing I learned early on was that whatever vision I had for a record, if something really great comes along, go with it, mm. right? Mm. Don't stick to some idea that isn't working, you know? Um, mm. But sometimes trying to do this, you come up with that, you know? And that's really good. Um, relax really, really went, you know, the way that the, way that the Frankies originally played it uh, was, was all based on a blues scale, you know? It was... Uh, 
it was just that thing, you know, dang, 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 and gang, dang, dang, relax, dang, dang, gang. And I think, I think, um, what was amazing was uh, was that uh, when we started the version that became the record, um, we had been we'd been playing with it a bit in the rehearsal room, but because Frankie were a band, it had never occurred to me that I could you know that I could just do it without them there. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. right? Um, I didn't you know I hadn't got to that point really. Um, but when we decided, you know, it wasn't certainly wasn't working the way we were trying to get it, and we went back and we started on that idea, you know, the eights on the piano. It was something that JJ had showed me, and I said, "Great, that's really good." The eights. Suddenly realized, God, those eights will fit all the way under relax, uh, mm. and and then you know the drum machine parts, and then and then I said. Why don't we, instead of this awful American blues scale, why don't we go European? Let's put it in a minor key, mm. you know? And, uh, and, you know, you go from, I mean, a blues scale is a, is a minor, really. It's a flattened third, you know? Mm. Uh, but when you play the minor, it suddenly changes and it becomes more European, more sort of world-like, you know? Mm. And it, we were lucky it just suddenly took off. We knew it was good when we were working on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we, we more or less did it in a day, vocal, everything, you know? I tweaked it a bit a couple of days later, but that was, that was pretty much it. Mm. Uh, it. Because back in those days, you couldn't synchronize anything back to tape. You mm. record your track to tape, and that was it. And so we were running a drum machine, Fairlight, um, and a guitar at the same time with, you know, JJ playing on top of, you know, the, the secret. It was a trip. Mm. Uh, and one of the great things about a Lynn drum machine was that you could change it on the fly. So you, you, you could sort of, you, you know, you could get going, you could do it live, which is how I did it. I just changed the patterns on the fly. Mm. But, you know, we, we rehearsed it for four hours, I think. You know, and then we got it first take. Fantastic. Shall we dig into your phonographic memories? Because you've given us three three tracks to uh, help tell the story of your your life or your career. And the first one you've given us is uh, a track by the Yardbirds. Can you talk to us about this one? Well, this is this was um, if I'm right, this would be 65 or 66. Mm -hmm. This track. Happenings 10 years time ago, that one. And it was Yardbirds that had a, a little bit of a stream of hits with, um, you know, Shape of Things and For Your Love. And I was really into the Yardbirds. And at this point, when, when I bought um, Happenings 10 years time ago, I had the single. I just literally moved to Leicester. Mm. And there was something about the guitar solo and people talking in the distance that really because um, it's Jeff Beck mm. that really sort of caught my imagination and so I used to listen to it a lot and it reminds me if I hear it it reminds me of being 16 and being in Leicester in a strange town after <laughs> I just moved from Durham I lived all my life in Durham and I had no friends in Leicester
it was quite a, a psychedelic period that i mean that uh, as a someone you know who's coming up whose whose destiny is to go on and produce things the it was a, it was a period where the the band had another instrument in the studio for the first time really you know you think about the the beatles and when they started and it was just you know, get together in the room and bang it out. And then by the end, it was like nine months of tweaking and re-recording and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that era must have had quite a quite an effect on, on how you looked at music and how it was made. Well, it would, I mean, it may have been psychedelic and I kind of got that psychedelic thing. I was a little bit bemused by it because I was only 15 or 16. I'd never taken a drug apart from alcohol in my life, you know? And, <laughs> but I was aware that the Beatles were up to some funny stuff. <laughs> um, you know, with the outfits, but it was such good fun. I didn't sort of question it too much. Mm. Um, but you're right; it's it's a very it's a very psychedelic record, and it was around the same time as Hendrix first broke through. And if you think about it, they used to make very psychedelic videos of him. You know, mm. he, he yeah. was very good for that kind of thing. In terms of the context of you hearing and and enjoying this record, like it sounds like you associate it with. A uh, feeling of of isolation and sort of loneliness. I mean, did getting into that type of music help you find your tribe after you moved? Well, no, because it, it, this was just one record of quite a few that I was pretty obsessed with at the mm. time. Like I think, like a Rolling Stone came out around about then too. Mm. And I I had a guitar, and what I used to do was I worked up an act, you know, with the harmonica on a thing. I could still do it, you know. Um, bits of it and I learned every single Bob Dylan song wow. uh, that I mm. had out up to that point so that's what I used to spend my time doing I can still remember you know half the lyrics for uh, Desolation Row or something like that <laughs> those lyrics are incredibly complicated I mean that's that's not like she loves you yeah 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 you know that's uh, that's some proper oh, proper poetry oh I mean Gates of Eden yeah a war and peace the truth just twists it's curfewed gullets it glides between four-legged forest clouds, the cowboy angel rides. Yeah. There the you go. Into the sun, though its glow, glow may be waxed or black, all except beneath the gates of Eden. You know, I used to know all the verses. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember them now. Well, were you always listening to lots of different types of music, though? You were never, you, you know, you, you, you didn't specialise, as it were. Well, I like pop music. I didn't like, um, you know, I didn't like trad jazz or anything like that. Mm. Although I, I, I used to do loads of trad jazz gigs in my early 20s because in London there were lots of those sort of gigs around. If you were know. you doing them through gritted teeth, <laughs> seeing as you didn't like <laughs> no, it? No, no, playing anything properly is always, uh, always good fun and yeah. trad, you know. Trad's one of those things most of the time you're either going plunk, plunk or plunk, 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 <laughs> or, you know what I mean? It's, but, you know, it's knowing all the chords. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, quite. But I used to, uh, you know... I knew most of the chords for all the old, old track things. So. Mm, mm. In terms of uh, musical styles, uh, your your second choice is what I would call a proper rocker uh, in the American Woman, Guess Who. Uh, I mean, a friend of mine played this out uh, rather randomly just a couple of weeks ago in a, in a, a big sort of a brewery in London. And um, it really sounds amazing and got the whole crowd going again. And I'm sure nearly everyone in that room was far too young to remember it first time around. Tell us about why you chose this one. Well, I chose this. This is a this is a funny one because for two reasons. The first reason, I, I when I was living in London, 
first living in London, uh, I think it would have been 1970, mm. late 69 or 70, I think I came to London. My sister had this record mm. and I, I really liked it. Um, and the, um, I used to listen to it a lot. American woman, that are with for me. Yeah, I remember, and you, you're right, it was a really beefy sounding record. But then they sort of turned it to Backman Turner Overdrive, mm. um, the guess who, I think a few members. And then much later, when I was working with Malcolm McLaren, I bumped into Africa Bambara, and Malcolm introduced us. And I remember shouting in his ear, who's your favorite band? And he went, the Guess Who. Wow. Man. And I said, what? The Guess Who? <laughs> Knowing exactly who they were. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, oh man, I've got a live album and there's some great drum breaks on it. The drum sounds fucking amazing, you know? That's, that was my other memory attached to it. Yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Africa Mambata liked the guess who who'd have known i didn't even realize yeah. they were that good for drum breaks i must go and investigate that I didn't realise that you'd um, you'd worked uh, on Duck Rock either, which is another really really Rock. classic album that's well ahead album. of its time. Yeah. When you approached that, I mean, the, the the sounds on there were really different to what was going on at the time, and the whole notion of having all the little uh, vocal snippets and kind of samples of radio conversations and stuff. I mean, what, how did that all come about? Was there a where was where was that being led from? Who was who was driving that? Was that Malcolm McLaren or was Malcolm, that Malcolm McLaren had a tape of the world's famous Supreme Team <laughs> show? They used to uh, um, they used to rent a half an hour of radio time in New York at four a.m. Mm. like twice a week, and they put on a show and people would call them up. Malcolm told me the re the show was really for them to you know get women. <laughs> <laughs> they also, and you can hear them on the radio. Hey, just like a superstar, you know. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But, little but she. It was, yeah, <laughs> little she. Yeah. So I had that tape, and I, I, th I had a tape of their show, and there was all that stuff on it, and that was the first time I ever heard anybody scratching records. You know, mm. yeah. I was pretty knocked out with the record scratching because it seemed to me it was the same thing as the Fairlight, only kind of analog. Hmm. Um, but I'll tell you a funny thing that happened. You know, on the end of Buffalo Girls. There's uh, a little voice where she says, too much of that Snow White. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, it's actually in reply to a question from Just Like the Superstar, I think, where he says, hey, how come you're still up? And she said, too much of that Snow White. <laughs> yeah. And I put that at the end of the Buffalo Girls. And then suddenly it was on the BBC and it was <gasps> being played and everything. 
and I and I started to get a bit paranoid that I was going to get into trouble because yeah. of that, uh, because of that bit at the end. And one day I was down at Sam East, and the receptionist came in and said, "Trevor, it's it's the controller of the BBC on the phone." And I thought, "Oh my God, no! What I've been dreading." And so I I take the call and it's the controller of the BBC, but. It was just to tell me that I'd won the DJ's award for that year. I never mentioned it. In spite of that little Snow White, that, that's, there yeah. must be a, a list somewhere of all of the, the secret drug references that managed to make it onto the BBC without anyone knowing. I think the, the nice couplet to this, of course, is that uh, with uh, the Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Relax and Two Tribes <laughs> videos, etc., you certainly upset the BBC later on, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm very fond of the BBC. I love the BBC. Oh, yeah. Great. Things about living in Britain. Um, shall we get to your third phonographic memory then? Mother dear, Barclay James Harvest. What can you tell us about this one? This, this is a song that um, I used to perform in my stage act mm. when I was sort of 18. And I was 19, maybe a little bit older. Um, and I was in Denmark. I don't know, I just love this song because it's uh, somebody sort of seeing a prophecy of their own death mm. and there's something quite sort of sad and haunting about it. Mm. I guess that's why I liked it. This one always reminds me of that time and it was a strange time because uh, I, I spent a little bit of time living in Christiania. That was an amazing uh, place. That was, for the listeners, that was a, it was like a free state, like, almost like a traveller's enclave. Like it, would, it, would, it was like the new new age travellers used to have, where they 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 build themselves a little area, but that was a, basically a free state in Copenhagen. I was in a band, and the band was being uh, funded basically by by a guy who was uh, smuggling uh, hash out of uh, Kabul. In <laughs> he he advertised. We we only found that out about four weeks in. He advertised for musicians, put a band together, flew us out to Denmark. And then put us up in Christiania. I mean, Mental. it was a wild place mm-hmm. um, because it, there, it was officially there was no power. But um, the guy, the guy who was sort of running the building that I was in, had dug a hole in the ground, and he just hooked into the mains. <laughs> no way! Um, so it was it was a pretty interesting time in my life, and uh, and I, I enjoyed certain aspects of it. And mm. I used to play play this song sometimes when I used to do a few songs with just a, it was very mm. much people would would play a lot of music you know mm. oh, dear, what a night this has been I awoke in the light of a vision in white The prettiest girl that I have ever seen Lately my love said the lady in white I have watched from afar But love draws me near now take my hand, old tired mother dear. Do you know what this could mean, mother dear? 
You must have been quite a, a sort of free-spirited, confident young person in order to just go off and, and have an adventure like that so young. Others might say an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> fearless, I would say. Yeah, fearless. fearless. I never thought about it back then, you know. Mm. I come from the northeast. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a lot of my early life ducking gangs of Ted's who wanted to beat the crap out of me. Wow, yeah, yeah. Because I had I, I, I had glasses and I was grainy. You're grainy. <laughs> Is that what brainy? How are we here? We're going to brain you, you know? Wow. That kind of stuff. I used to get a fair amount of that. Brains. <laughs> did, did you feel that in that case that you were sort of you? Did you feel as though you kind of had to go out in the world and look for something else, like some place where you might fit in? Uh, I, I don't know if I was looking to fit in any time. I didn't mm. care about fitting in. Uh, mm. When I used to w walk to school and, you know, I used to see the trains, I used to think, I'm going to be on that train one day getting out of here. Yeah. Mm. You know, I want to go to the places <laughs> that I read about in the newspapers. Yeah. What was it like fulfilling that little prophecy, that wish for yourself? Because, you know, it, you know, Leicester's a long way from Durham, but, you know, you ended up in, in L.A. and all sorts. So, you know, I guess it's a, you know, it's a step set of experiences. But uh, when did you feel you were really, you know, getting out of the, the small town mentality and finding your way into the big time? Well, I, it's funny, we were just talking about this at lunch. I came to London when I was 21. Hmm. I mean, I came to London before that but um, only for a day, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. But I actually moved to London when I was 21. And uh, I, I lived in a um, Earl's Court in a house full of bedsits, you know. Mm. And there mm. were Turkish people, French people, Canadian people, Pakistani people, all kinds of people. And I'd, it was very new to me. I'd never met uh, people from outside the country before mm. you know and and it was a great experience and and i really enjoyed that i really enjoyed the, you know looking back um i can't you know everyone was so friendly you know when you're all just starting out it's probably like university i never went to university but i can imagine university is a bit like that mm. do you know in the world and being you know i was uh I wanted to be a musician, and being a musician takes you all over the place, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But you don't, yeah, and one of the good things when you're a musician is that you're working when everybody's off, and you're off when everybody else is working. <laughs> so you get the place to yourself, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eamon, <laughs> I mean, you had a question about the, the fair light that we were talking about before Trevor came well, online. Yes. Let's ask this question. Yeah, yeah. So we were just uh, idly talking before you came online, and uh, we uh, well, we know that Kate Bush had one of the four fair lights that came into England, and we talked to Nigel Planer and his record producer brother had one of them, and now it turns out you have one of them. So there's supposed to be four in the country. We're wondering who had the other fair light. Uh, Jeffrey Downs. He knew as well. That's amazing. <laughs> if anyone in the country is going to know, it's going to be this guy. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for solving that mystery for us. <laughs> Jeff Downs and Peter Gabriel. Oh, ah, so yeah, yes, 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 yes. So there you go. Mm. That must have been such a game changer. You, you obviously knew or saw the potential in that, you know, really early on. Because, A, you know, it's, it's very sharp in technology for the time. B, it was a big investment. I mean, you had to you had to really want that and go for it. I mean, 
did you did you have a big plan for sampling? Was that was that the main thing? Do you think I could do things that I just couldn't do before? What what made you take I'd, that big I'd, bet? I'd seen it with Jeffrey. I'd seen what it was capable of, and I understood what it did. Mm. Um, and I said to Jill, I, "I need one of these because it's I need one." And you know, it was a lot of money, but I'd made a lot of money from Video Killed the Radio Star. And what else am I going to mm. invest in apart from myself? <laughs> yeah. Um, and when it arrived, it was beautiful. I set it up. I plugged all the wires in, like it said in the manual. Uh, and then I loaded up the one page, and the first sound I heard on it was orc stab. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, wow, I can use that. Well, there's a good start. But then the manual got incredibly technical, so I thought, this is not going to work. Uh, there's no way I can get into this drum machine's about my limit. Um, and uh, that's when I did some one of the few clever things I ever did, which was get give it to JJ and Charlick, JJ, uh, JJ mm. and basically did a deal with him, and he worked on it all the time. And I would pay him for the days where he came into the studio, and that's how I got all that brilliant stuff, really. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah I, I give JJ an idea. We're going to do Teresa Bazaar's backing vocals. So she's got to sing, la, 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 la. Do you think you can get a la in? And, you know, and we'd make the samples and give them to JJ, and he'd disappear for days and come back and say, check this out. Uh, mm. You know, we have la, 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 you know, fantastic. Yeah. So uh, that's the way I worked it, because... It was one, you know, it was somebody's job, that thing. It was so complicated. Wow. And of course, that basically allowed the, the art of noise to come into life. And uh, what a fantastic groundbreaking bit of work that was. I mean, uh, mostly instrumental, loads of samples, breakbeats from hip hop. That was like it landed from another world when that came out. I mean, how, how was it to work on? See, what we used to do... We'd be working on Malcolm McLaren, or I mean, w one of the big things on the Art of Noise came from Yes, the drum loop on uh, on Beatbox was Alan mm. White. It was a track mm. from the Yes album that didn't work, called Red Light Green Light. It was a great sound, and JJ looped it in the in the fair. It was the first time I ever heard a digital drum loop. And we were knocked out with it. And so we would start doing things. When the main session finished, JJ had a skull and crossbones. And he used to say, hoist the Jolly Roger. <laughs> somebody's track. And we'd start messing around. And we'd record everything, just do daft things. And the sort of daft things turned into the art of noise. Mm. I had all of that stuff, you know. And, and, you know, and things like beatbox. And... When I brought Paul Morley into ZCT and played it to him, he loved it, of course. And he came back with the name, The Art of Noise. And he came up with this idea, sampling the 20th century, 20, whatever it was, 21st century. Um, and it sort of took off from there. Uh, I mean, I remember Anne saying to me, I just did an interview where people think I'm all artistic and everything. And, and I'm not. And I said, uh, not really. We were just messing around. And I said, but Anne, that's being artistic <laughs> yeah that's it yeah. <laughs> were you surprised at, at the at the sudden success of that we did speak to Anne Dudley earlier on in the in the podcast and um you know she was, oh, was she? she was more than delighted with waking up to a number one but very surprised yeah. I, I wasn't surprised at how enthusiastically the first art of noise thing was 
was, was taken because I knew the scene in New York because I'd been there with Mark and McLaren and I thought they're going to love this in New York, which they did, you know. Um, so, no, I wasn't too surprised. I was, I was really, I was pleased that we managed to get a hit with, uh, you know, close to the edit and then Moments in Love. <laughs> And I still think Moments in Love is probably one of the best tracks we ever did. And, mm. You know, and, and had a lot to do with that, you know. Yeah, I mean, it still gets played, you know, it's still getting remixed on the regular in the club yeah. scenes. You, every every other year a version comes out. I've got dubstep versions and jungle versions and techno versions and all sorts. Yeah, so there is something timeless about that. Mm. When you've done something, yeah. do you... Does, is it obvious to you whether whether it's going to fly, whether it's going to have that kind of longevity, whether it's going to be that hit, or you know, sometimes you do you finish and just think, oof, I don't know, what's going to go on? Well, when you finish something and you know it's good, then mm. you you kind of forget about it and hope that everything's going to be okay. Mm. Um, you know, like for instance, when I finished uh, all the things she said, I didn't hear anything for 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 for, for ages, and I forgot about it. I knew it was good. Somebody said to me, I remember somebody said, said, do you think it's good? And I said, yeah, it's good. If you get through the first chorus, you really enjoy it. It really picks up in the second verse and it, it's good. Hmm. Uh, and then they called me out the blue and said, um, it's coming in at number one. I couldn't <laughs> wow. believe it. You know, so that's good. That's nice when you hear that. Yeah. Same thing with Fight the Moonlight. Didn't hear anything for ages. And then he called me up and said, it's coming in at number one. Yeah, great, fantastic. That magic touch. Yeah, um, Trevor Horn. It's been such a pleasure and a privilege to speak to you about all these amazing records and your yeah, phonographic yeah, memories as well. Uh, it's yeah. been great, and congratulations as well on the book Advent- Adventures in in Modern Recording, which is uh, such a. I mean, it, basically, it's kind of a uh, almost like a, a, a deeper continuation of this conversation, really. So. Uh, yeah. Like I say, that the format of the podcast feels fitting. But thank you so much for for speaking to us. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Trevor, and 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 thank you so much for all that wonderful music that we grew up with and uh, still love so much. So, it's uh, I think you comprise about about ten percent of my record collection. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. Bye. I do hope you enjoyed listening to the fabulous Trevor Horn tell us all about his phonographic memories. And we always love to have you along on our little journeys. And we don't ask very much, we don't ask for money, we don't ask for cake. What we ask for is fame. So please, just tell a friend, spread the word, let's grow this pod organically like a fantastic watermelon. Um, We love you forever. And special thanks to Tom Colvin for cleaning up the audio on this week's podcast. So we did have a horrible few moments where we were trying to tell one of the world's greatest producers to adjust his microphone levels. Not a good one. Get away from me.